You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning and welcome. Um, if you're joining us uh, for the first time, it's great to have you with us. Like Bert said, we always just enjoy having new people show up. And um, and for all the faithful Every Nation GTA scattered across the GTA, or maybe perhaps even in Canada, wherever you're watching from, welcome. It's a great joy to be with you in your living rooms, uh, however you're taking this in. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Richard. And uh, I have the great joy and privilege this morning to kick off our next sermon series. We just finished up a great sermon series looking through the the complex book of the Ecclesiastes. If you missed that, you might want to go check it out on our website. Um, but now leading up to Advent, uh, we're going to be looking at a, uh, a series called Salt and Light. And so it comes from the words of Jesus to primarily his followers. He said, you are the salt of the world, sorry, salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so we're going to be exploring what that means. We're going to be exploring what Jesus was uh who he was speaking to, what that means for us, how do we even go about being that in the world? Why is it important? So the way I want to start off today is I want to put this uh, photo before you. And this was from our recent trip to Cape Town, South Africa. My family and I got the uh, privilege to be able to go to our Every Nation World Conference that was being hosted in Cape Town, South Africa. And we got to stay on a couple of weeks after the conference to catch up with some family and some friends. I lived there 30 years of my life, so it was very familiar to me. And so this photo that's before you, um, you say, okay, that's great. You know, it's you doing Richard things, um, speaking at a church. is one of our Every Nation churches. It was one of the newer locations at a high school. Um, but like a lot of things in life, there's always a story behind it. Uh, you might have something in your home that's of a special value to you, and someone says, what is that? And you say, well, let me tell you the story behind it. So let me tell you the story behind this photo in particular. This was a really great moment just for me and really my family because 27 years ago, that was the high school that I graduated from, matriculated. It spent four, uh, spent my high school years at Westford High School. That hall was very familiar to me. It felt a lot smaller going back as an adult for sure. And um, and high school was a was a kind of a turbulent time for me. I I, I went to high school as a Christian, a very uh, foundational belief in in that. I'd grown up as a Christian, but by the time I'd left high school, I'd fallen away from the faith. Kind of my life was in quite a bit of a mess. And so to kind of be back there was really redemptive for me to be back there, and not just back there, but back there preaching the gospel in the very hall that um, a lot of my life was being formed and deformed and struggling and wrestling with questions of faith and whatnot. And so it was a great moment to then be able to take my kids around and say, that's the principal's office. I know it very well. Um, here's some of the classes that I took. And yeah, it was just a very sweet moment that I really just thank God for. And, um, and so... I share that story as a way to really illustrate what we're trying to do, uh, at least in this first message in this series of messages. Um, and so we want to explore Jesus' inspirational and really challenging call for us as his followers to be an influence of good within our world, but to really fully understand what that means for us and what Jesus' intent behind that for us. Context is key, right? Um, anything that was said by Jesus, there's a context behind it. There's a story behind it. And so I want to draw from Luke chapter 24, and um, it's the 
It's the day of Jesus' resurrection. The death. It's been a tra- uh, traumatic weekend, if you will, for his followers, seeing the death of their leader. And then all of a sudden, there's no body in the tomb. And, um, and so Jesus catches up with his disciples later that evening. And this is where we catch, this is where we join the story there. This is Jesus. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you with my father what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And so there's some beautiful things in that passage. You see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and then the promise of the Spirit there. But you also see a, be- a closing and then a beginning. Um, Jesus basically gives his disciples... now. Bear in mind, Jesus' disciples were Jewish men who were well-versed as Jewish men in the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus is not telling them about scriptures they don't know, but he's telling them a different way to understand the scriptures that really were all about the Messiah and his mission. And so in some ways, the scriptures up until Jesus' time had has now been fulfilled in Jesus, but there's not an ending. It feels like there's a beginning now the mission's really going to move forward, going to continue to move forward. So Jesus gives them a context, a story behind all that's been happening to understand the reason for the death and the resurrection, understand the reason for the mission now to the rest of the world, understand the scriptures. He said he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so here's a great time to pause and pray and say, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, the great teacher, uh, open our minds to understand the scriptures, to understand um, the great mission and purpose and drama that the Bible's drawing us into and inviting us into. And so I pray for today and even throughout this series, God, would you challenge and change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So understand the scriptures. How do you understand the scriptures? How do you approach the Bible? I remember when I was very young, I remember someone saying the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, is an acronym for basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Some of you, you're nodding your heads. I can't see you, but I I assume you're nodding your heads. You might have grown up with that understanding. And so it's kind of cute as a kid, but as I think about it now and reflect on how poor that is as a descriptor for understanding the Bible. One, it's not basic, right? The Bible is very... Uh, far from basic. And it has very little to do about leaving earth. It has a lot to do about what's happening here on earth and how God is bringing heaven to earth. But there are many ways that we approach the Bible. We approach it for wisdom. We approach it for principles uh, and how best to live our lives. We approach it with um, a sense of looking at the moral stories, the moral characters to to see what's um, in person's character, what's what's to be valued, what's to be a danger, to stay away. We look at the great characters of the Bible. We look at their lives and we can learn lots from them. We look at the Bible for promises. And so those are not wrong. Those are great ways to look at the Bible, but they're all insufficient for understanding the context and the story and the arc of the Bible. I want to listen, listen to this. Australian sociologist John Carroll, who's not professing to be a Christian at all, but he believes that the reason that the church in the West is in trouble is because they have forgotten 
its story. He goes on to say this. In his view, the waning of Christianity as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task to retell the foundation, the, their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. And so here's a sociologist and, and not a practicing Christian, but saying, Christianity, you have a story. Now, people can argue whether that's a believable story or not, but there is a powerful story. And your central task is to communicate that story that bears relevance to the times that we live in. And I think he's onto something. We know the power of story. You know, we know movies, novels, even music. The power of story grips us. It, it captures us. Um, you think about how in our culture, how so much of the values of our culture are shaped by over repeated stories about how life is best to live. Think about ideas in our culture about freedom and what identity should be like and what happiness is and how to pursue the best life or the Canadian dream. And, and we see where those things are elevated and we also see where like, wow, those things are being challenged in our time. And so there's power of stories all around us. It's pervasive and it's very persuasive. But is it telling us the right story about reality? And so our lives, your life, my life, all of our lives are being shaped by some story or even smaller stories as well. You think about your family of origin, where you came from. That was a big formative story that shaped your life for good or for bad. Uh, you think about your ethnic or national or cultural identity. Think about the story your nation has told you, the story that your, your nation has shaped you. Think about the surrounding culture that we're in. There's stories all around us trying to shape us. And I think John Carroll and many others are onto something when they say basically what and how to understand the scriptures is to understand that the scriptures are telling one comprehensive, compelling, and coherent story. And it's the story of God and his interaction with his world and certainly his redemptive activities within his world. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, the, the missionary and missiologist, put it this way. He says, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part. And so subconsciously or consciously, you might be aware of the story that shaped your lives, but we're all being shaped about, about uh, around a story. And so for us to get a sense of what's going on in reality, we have to know the story that we are a part of. And so all stories, all religions, all philosophies are telling a story. And part of story is to answer the big questions we have in life, the questions that must be answered one way or another in our hearts. Where do we come from? What's our purpose here? What's wrong with the world? What will fix it? And ultimately, where is the future heading? And that sounds very much like the arc of almost every single story. The most a common narrative arc is a beginning and an end. And in between, you have some kind of problem or tension or conflict that needs resolution. Movies are based upon this. Novels are based upon this. And all stories have a sense of that arc. You know, think of our modern story or a humanistic story, a story that doesn't really acknowledge God. Well, our beginning started with a, a random Big Bang or an event, right? A random Big Bang. From there, creation began. And we evolved over millions and millions and millions of years. And progress of science and technology is taking us to a better, better, better world. Now, we can poke 
kind of holes in that thinking right now because we've seen progress of science and technology be wonderful but at the same time being incredibly destructive. But that's a story. That's a story that's trying to tell you how to make sense of the world around you. And so we have these stories and then we have a grand story. And a grand story is something that's comprehensive. It's about all of life and it's normative. It's true for everyone. And so the biblical story is in the realm of a grand story. It's telling a grand story that is true for everyone and it affects all of life. And the structure of the Bible really does lend it to a story, as to a story right? In the beginning, in the first words in your Bible, in my Bible, in the beginning, we know there's an end and in between there's a lot going on there um, within the biblical story. Uh, it's a complex story and it's a dramatic story. It's a huge cast of characters, many different settings and scenes and written over hundreds of years. But even in its complexity, complexity there's a simplicity of the one story that it's telling and so um i want to before we go into that i want to just um frame it like this well i'm not going to frame it christopher wright is going to frame it but much better he says it like this the bible clearly reveals the god who drives the whole story of the universe forward with a sense of divine purpose and ultimate destiny who also calls into existence a people who share in that divine mission a people with an identity and role within the plan of God. So what would that plan of God be? What is the purpose of God and what is my purpose within that? And this is where I believe the story of Scripture helps you and I re relocate our individual story within a much bigger story. And I believe it's a story that's very compelling, it's coherent, and it's a story that God is inviting you to in. So I'm going to take a few minutes, and we're going to fly over the Bible in seven acts, like a drama. It moves through seven acts. And so I've got a helpful little diagram along the way, and these symbols might help you. And so if you're in a coffee shop tomorrow, if you're in a classroom tomorrow, if your neighbor says, what on earth is the Bible about? Maybe within a couple of minutes on a napkin, you could compellingly tell them this is what ultimately the story of God is all about. Number one, we start with creation. And here we have a triangle. And this triangle is really important because it symbolizes not just the Trinity. Obviously, we know that God is a Trinity. But it, it symbolizes a relationship that's essential between God, humankind, and creation. Right? And sometimes we just focus on God and humankind and we kind of leave our creation. The creation is a big part of that story. And Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how God creates and establishes his cosmos as his temple. It's the place where he lives. He dwells at his space. And then he creates humanity as the pinnacle of his creation in his image to rule and serve and steward and care and cultivate for the earth um, that he has created. And so the, the dream for God is to seamlessly be in relationship with us and to see us flourish. He's given us a lot of power over his creation. And so as we do that well, we bring glory to God. And as we do that into creation, we bring the, the heart of God into his cosmos, into his world. And so right there, the creational beginning is, <coughs> excuse me, loaded with implications for the rest of the story. We could unpack each of these seven acts in greater detail. That's not the time and place for here, but just think about this quickly, some of the implications of just the beginning of that story, the goodness of the material and physical world. And God said every time he created, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he got to you and I said, it's very good. And so just the goodness of the material, the sanctity of all human life and all its shapes and colors and its ethnic diversity, the intrinsic value of work. We were put in this world to work and co-labor with God way before anything bad happened. 
and all of its dimensions at work is intrinsic to us as human beings. And then just the importance of stewarding the cre creation well. There's a lot of emphasis now on climate change and creation care. That's way back in the beginning. And part of the story is God wanting us to look after the amazing planet that he has given us. So the story starts really well, starts beautifully, and then tragically, very quickly, in your Bible, my Bible, we go to the second act. We can call this rebellion. That Genesis 3 really recounts the tragedy of humans turning away from their creator, of rebelling against their creator, and in so doing, corrupting everything in terms of the functioning of the creative order. We see evil enters the world with devastating consequences on all dimensions of life with God, with one another, with creation, and within ourselves. And so no part of us is unaffected by sin, by evil, so that we could say that no point are you and I as good as we should be. And so Genesis 4 to about Genesis 11, there's a flood and there's a whole lot, just really highlights the downward spiral and the expanding effect sin has and escalates through generations and through societies. And so one clear implication of this part of the story, if there's going to be any resolution, if there's going to be any solution to this, it's going to have to be a really big comprehensive one because the rebellion has stained everything in us and in God's cosmos. Genesis 12 in your Bible, my Bible, now brings a turning point. We could call this Act 3, and it's a long journey and a long story of Israel. And Genesis 12 really is God intervening graciously, redemptively with a plan, with a promise, and a people to bring about uh, his redemptive purposes for the sake of the world. And so kind of tongue-in-cheek, we could sum up this part of the story. It says, for God so loved the world that he chose Abraham and created Israel. He chose a specific people and family to be a blessing to the world. It was never just about one particular nation or ethnicity or family. It was always the world, right? That's his heart. That's his goal because the world has been affected by sin. But he used a specific family in order to get there. And so this Act 3 is long. Your Old Testament is very long. But it really comprises the long story of God's people trying to figure out how to be uh, on God's purpose, and we see how they sometimes succeed in that, and oftentimes how they fail dismally in that. Act four is the centerpiece of the story, and we'll call this Jesus, right? And the Old Testament promise culminates and finds fulfillment through Jesus of Nazareth. And obviously, the four Gospels in the New Testament tell us the story of specifically Jesus' birth, his life, his teachings, and then his death, his resurrection, and then onto his ascension. And so this act four in this great drama of Scripture um, it becomes the central climatic act. It becomes the heartbeat of the whole story, the grand story. Acts 1 and 3 point towards this. Acts 5 and 7 are a result of this. And we'll spend more time next week unpacking this particular part of the story. But just know for right now, it's at the center of the story. But it's not the end of the story. Story goes on in Act 5, the church. This is where you and I find ourselves chronologically right now. This is where the story is happening right now in history. God's plan and promise continues to move forward. And the fifth act is another long journey 
of God's people, but now not just the Jewish people, Jew and Gentile, those who have turned in faith to Jesus, bearing witness to this good news about Jesus and striving to participate in the purposes and the plans of God in this new age. And so Jesus launches the church, his people, with his mission, with the power of his spirit. And again, this is where we find ourselves. And so this is a long journey. We're still in it. But then there's two more acts. And the act six is the penultimate act before the final act. And act six, um, sometimes, and, and by the way, this is not, uh, this is not novel to me. There's many different views and different ways that people have put the drama of scripture. A lot of people put it in six acts. A lot of people leave out the six act judgment, but I think it's important to put it in there because we hear judgment, it comes across as negative. We don't like to be judged, We think, but judgment in a biblical sense is actually part of the good news, and I'll tell you why it's part of the good news. Because at Christ's return, and he will return, um, the final judgment of sin, death, and Satan will take place. In other words, evil, injustice, sin, death, Satan, they're not going to get the final word. Judgment is good news. Why? Because God must put all things right, but dealing with all things wrong before he can make all things new. He has to put all things right by dealing with all things wrong before he can make all things new. And so Act 6 finds itself kind of around Revelation 20 in your Bible, and it's the story of final judgment, that everything in our heart that still cries of, why is there injustice in the world? Why have we experienced injustice ourselves? And it's, and it's hard to live in the tension of that seeing that not seeing that justice fully available in our world. But Act 6 is good news because God will bring final judgment and justice into his world. Um, and so that leads into Act 7, the finale of the story of new creation. After final judgment, the whole creation, the whole cosmos will be purged, cleansed, freed from its evil and sin and restored to all God intended it to be. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah talked about this uh, extensively. Here's just one verse where he talks about this promise of God fixing, resolving the tension in this narrative of all that's gone wrong. And he said it like this, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And so Christ will come back and reign fully, eternally with his people, such that Revelation 21 and 22 really mirror Genesis 1 and 2, because it says it like this, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, God seamlessly being with his people in a fully restored universe, a fully restored earth and creation. And so we see a beautiful symmetry in this story, the pinnacle of it being Jesus, but Act 1 to 3 leading up to Jesus, just kind of like he was telling his disciples, understand scriptures. It was all about pointing to this moment, but this is not the end. It's all about moving towards ultimate redemption, ultimate purpose that God has, and you're a part of that, and here's how you're a part of it, and that's what we're trying to unpack. That's what we're trying to explore in this series called Salt and Light. And so as we wrap this up, as we bring this particular message to a close, I hope that gives you a context that we'll refer to throughout this series to figure out sometimes what is it specifically. And so you might be sitting there and thinking, how on earth does that have relevance to my day-to-day -day life? How on earth does this have impact me? And that's a great question to ask. It's the so what 
question. Like, great, so what? How does this impact and have relevance to me? Well, the question I would have for you and for me is what story are you living in right now? What story are you living for? And is it the story that God is speaking? Is it the reality that God is painting? You know, the challenge is that unless we are immersing, unless we understand and know the story, this biblical grand story, unless we're actively and intentionally and regularly immersing ourselves in this story, the reality is that you and I are actually being shaped by other stories that are compelling around us, telling us what the solution is to the, to the world, telling us what the problem is, telling us how to live a good and a fulfilling life. And they're compelling, but they might not be true. They might not represent the reality that God has. And so in every act, you know, chronologically, we're in Act 5. But almost in every act, you could see yourself. You being created in the image of God, you have value. Act 2 tells you another reality of, yeah, there's, 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 there's stuff in us that we need, we need dealing with. There's stuff in us that corrupts the goodness that God gives us. That his promise through a people was for you and I, ultimately, for the Jew and Gentile. That culminates in Jesus. And we get to be a part of that in Act 5 as his church. We get to not be afraid of judgment. For those that are in Christ, Act 6 has already happened. Jesus has taken my judgment. I shouldn't fear that day. And so we know that we can have confidence that judgment has been taken on my behalf by Jesus if I acknowledge and trust in him. And so I look forward to Act 7. So theologically and spiritually, we're actually already in Act 7. But not yet is it in its fullness, right? We understand that not everything is solved and resolved. There's a lot of the tension of the story we're still grappling with. But make no mistake, Jesus on his resurrection started a new beginning. Started a new beginning of new creation. And so I want to end with this quote and I want to then go into just a prayer for us. Um, and so the danger, again, coming back to how you and I understand Scripture, and so when you pick up your Bible tomorrow and maybe you have your devotional, I, I'm not knocking those little bits and pieces, but the danger of us fragmenting our Bibles into little bits of morals or theology or character stories is that it becomes too easy to be absorbed by whatever dominant story our culture is telling us. It can be too easily manipulated to suit my preference. It can be too easily for me to take the Bible and make it relevant to my story versus the other way around. And you see this in the prosperity gospel, taking bits and pieces of the Bible and making it say something that really scripture isn't saying. I see this in Christian nationalism, that we're taking bits of the Bible. Uh, you see this when things like a war breaks out in the Middle East, all of a sudden some Christians are panicking. This is the end time. And so we take bits and pieces of this story and it's fragmented. And so what we need to remind ourselves of the grand story that God is telling and inviting and revealing to us. Philip Greenslade uh, ends it better than I can. So I'm going to just quote him. It's a lengthy one, but I think it's really good uh, in terms of the relevance of this story to our lives. Through believing the story, we are drawn into the action and find ourselves caught up in the saving movement of God. We learn to indwell the story. So looking out from within the biblical world with new eyes onto our postmodern lives and world. We stop trying to make the Bible relevant to our lives and instead begin to find ourselves being made relevant to the Bible. We give up the clumsy attempt to wrench the ancient text into our contemporary world and instead bring our world back into collision with and cleansing by the strange new world of the Bible. Through believing the story, we allow our minds to be continuously renewed by the normative narrative 
of God. What a great line. We stop trying to make the Bible relevant to my life and we ask the question, is my life relevant to the Bible and the story and the reality it's telling? Or am I fighting against that? And so I want to challenge us, I want to encourage us to have a bigger idea of what Scripture's inviting us into. Um, I want us to know this story well. I want us to be immersed in the story and allow this story to then shape how you and I see the world around us, to shape how you and I would think of things like freedom, identity, happiness, what is not the Canadian dream, what's the kingdom dream for my life. And it might be um, in symmetry with some aspects of our society, but it also might be in conflict with some aspects of our lives and society. And when it's in conflict, the invitation is for you and I to change and come into alignment with that. And that's what Jesus is going to speak to us about next week as we look to him specifically, the good news that he tells us about this new world that the Bible invites you and I into. As we plan for this series, as we launch this series, as we've been leading up to this series, uh, myself and our staff just feel that the first prayer we probably need to offer is for ourselves and our own hearts. And to say, God, if I look at my life, there are gaps in my life where I'm not fully on your mission, where I'm not maybe as passionate or I'm indifferent to about what's happening in your world through my world, where my world has blocked out all that's happening in this grand story. And so I would like to just lead us in a prayer, even if it's just for me, that's great, but I'm pretty sure there's some of you out there. And to say, Father, we uh, come before you humbly um, to say our hearts are not at a place where it needs to be. As we look at our world, perhaps we become indifferent. Perhaps we become self-centered. Perhaps, God, we're not as salty as you want us to be. Perhaps our light is dim so that we're not really effective at being good news people, at bringing influence to this world, at serving society, building your church taking care of your creation, the purpose that you have for us. And so, God, I, our prayer, my prayer is, would you change my heart? Would you change our hearts? Would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? And would you move us out into your world in the spirit of Jesus with compassion and with conviction? And Lord, would you turn us genuinely, truly into good news people in our everyday lives? Lord, we say that we need you. We need you, and we desperately ask for you to come and do what you do best in our hearts. Change us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.